Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Just to let you know, today's episode features people talking about the existence of substances that might alter a person's mood or well-being while taken. If that's not something you want to listen to with children, parents, grandparents, colleagues, in a car, in a house, whatever, we thought we'd give you a little heads up. We wouldn't want to leave you hanging. Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Motherfucklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. Derek O'Shea is unfortunately away, but I am Padre Quivonic, and I'm joined today by, um, I don't know, I think is it fair to say an internet sensation? I, I know you're an author, but I think that undersells it a little bit. It's Seamus O'Reilly. Hi, I mean, superstar. I mean, superstar. It's, it's yeah. for other people to say, but also for me to say if they fail to. Um, yes. Writer, author, raconteur, terrific dancer. Bon vivant. Um, bon vivant as yeah, well. Yeah, Shanaki. Uh, all man. those lovely, all those lovely words, which <laughs> I just get straight in uh, and put there. I do occasionally have to write things in my bio and uh, it's funny how difficult it is to do it I, without sounding like a complete arse. Oh God, I hate <laughs> writing bios. You just sound like a twat no matter, no matter what you do. Because then if you put in too little, people are going like, well, you didn't put this in. You're, you. And if you make it too jokey, it's like, you know, other writers are like, oh, fuck off. We have to write yeah. a serious one. Why do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bios, uh, you inevitably end up looking like a twat. So you might as well just own yeah. it. Just go for yeah, it. Abs- or just go blank. Go as blank as possible and just call yourself the superstar that you always knew you were. Yeah, just go totally out there. Or just go full-on philosopher about it. Seamus O'Reilly is. He's, he, ju- he, he just is. He just is, yeah. But Seamus O'Reilly is, and he's here today. And Seamus, you have a new book out, which we'll we'll get to in just a second. I um, I heard John, I heard John Drive Time. It was a really nice, or not Drive Time, um, oh, whoever was sitting in for Ryan Tuberty. Was on yeah, that, Oli- Oliver Callan there last Oliver, week. Oliver, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was a lovely interview. This is going to be a lot more fucking irreverent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just, just warn you off the bat, like, um, but uh, you first came to uh, the internet's attention a, a number of years ago. Um, I don't know, what's the best way of describing this? Because if we had to, like, I always think, right, in some stage in the future, when all this internet fad is finished, and there's no more social media and we get back to beating each other up with rocks and living in caves and stuff like that. It's going to be very difficult to explain Twitter to people, but it's going to be even more difficult to explain the concept of rush hour crush to, yeah. to someone. Yeah, and also, I mean, in the post-apocalyptic wasteland where you've got your engineer, you've got your mechanic, you've got your you know, heart surgeon lining up at the gates to be accepted into the compound, you know, and I wheel up there and I say, oh, I do some real good funnies, but I'll, 
I'll, I'll write them down for you because I used to do this on a computer and then you have to explain what a computer is. Um, yes, so I probably, uh, yes, I got the first little taste of sort of internet uh, memedom was when I was first moved over to London. I was very, very depressed in a job that I didn't enjoy. And so I just started writing silly letters to the Metro, which is just the free paper um, here uh, that would have... So it was read by 4 million people every single day uh, and occasionally, in fact, always, every pretty much every single issue would have one page that was just dedicated to rush hour crushes, yeah. which was, it's like a misconnection thing is what they call it in America. It's people you've seen on public transport usually, but it's it sort of broadened its remit a bit sometimes, uh, who you fancied. And so it's like a desperate, horny howl into the void trying yeah. to find that person you saw on the number 15 bus and say, I fancy you, do you want to go for a coffee? It is essentially, essentially it's a place for people to admit that they belong in horny jail. Yeah, absolutely. Honk, honk, straight into horny jail. Um, and it's, the, they were so funny. I would read them every single day because a lot of them were very um, speculative. Like, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tall order anyway. I mean, if someone remembering they were on a bus at one specific time, and remember, they'd say things like, you were wearing the brown shirt and uh, you, had bl- you had blonde hair and I'd love to go for a coffee with you. You're like, that's not even enough to go on. Yeah. And that's before you get to some of them that were deeply strange. Some of them think, were downright disturbing. All those ones like, we, we locked eye contact on the number 15 bus and stuff like that. It's like, yeah. I mean, you can, maybe you, can still you did, read, pal. Yeah, you can still, exactly. <laughs> and I think we've all experienced, uh, particularly men who do not read signals. So... At least, I mean, maybe this is better than them. I mean, almost definitely is better than That's going up to the much person. Better than that. Yeah. But it's still, it's like catalogs them. I mean, you should probably, if you're using it, sincerely be placed on a register. But uh, I was so taken with them. I thought, well, maybe I could write something in so ridiculous and see if it gets printed. And the first one I ever sent in got published. So it's that thing about, you know, gambling addicts always say, just you should never win your first bet. Um, and I did so I I, I sent in something like 80 over the course of three or four years and I got 26 27 something like that published that's a decent strike rate that's that's not bad like yeah and and like there's not really much to choose between the ones that did and didn't in terms of ridiculousness it could have just been they got loads more that day I was always from a different email always from a different phone number or whatever it was all I had people like in the office I worked in I was like here can I use your phone oh you didn't have a crush so I was (laughs) I was completely Look, clearly you can look back if you're if I was on the psychiatrist's couch I think you know it would be the easiest fiver they ever earned to tell me in 30 seconds that clearly I was someone in need of a creative outlet yeah I was (laughs) desperate to just get my name in ink and uh even if my name itself wasn't actually there so I I was doing that just to entertain literally my friends like people it's I cannot read any of them with a straight face like I can't sometimes you think I'm doing well I'm reading this one with a straight face and then you get to the name the sign off and sometimes, like, all the humours in the, the sign-off that you've given it. Yeah, well, the there's, first- there's one that went out again today. Um, I mean, it just, because some of them went, became memes of their own. So, because they're not all, like, you know, the incredible raconteur Seamus O'Reilly writes, you know, they're <laughs> very, most of the time they are, um, they're just sent out, they have their own life. So, there's one that I did, which particularly comes back every single day, just four hours ago, no context, Brits reposted it. And it's a perfect example of that. It just reads, To the sexy Spanish senorita on the number 30 bus to Highbury. I loved our heated chat on Friday, but realised what I did was insensitive to your country. I'm mortified. Please let me make up for it. Over tapas or paella or whatever. Signed, 
bearded man who used discarded burger cartons as castanets. So <laughs> that was the that was the one I was going to use as an example. I can't I can't listen to it without laughing. I can't <laughs> read it with straight face. Like and, and it it it's funny enough as it goes right through. Like you get to the bit where it's, let me take you out for like I was culturally insensitive. Let me bring you out for oh, fucking tapas or paella or whatever you eat. Yeah. Very funny, but then. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, it always, I always wanted the sign off to be part of the joke at least. Yeah. Um, so uh, the thing about that one is it's got, a, that one has had a second, third, fourth, fifth and, you know, 20th life. So like that was, you know, that was shared again today for like the hundred millionth time. So it's. By it's, the no context Brits, more yeah, cultural so appropriation. I know I replied, um, you know, this is by me, some context Irishes. Um, <laughs> so, so that was, that was an early an early shot across the bow for my boredom meeting my propensity for attention seeking. Um, and then as other things went on, I think that, that horrible algebra only became more profitable. <laughs> do you reckon, do you reckon someone in the Metro cottoned on at any stage that there was one deviant out there, one miscreant sending in the, the most ridiculous ones that said, maybe not because some of the normal, some of the sincere ones are pretty fucking ridiculous to begin with. Yeah. I mean, I did have some contact with the people at Rush Hour Crush because once or twice they would get back to me. I mean, I'd have email. I had like, I used, I think I used about 14 different emails and loaded because you can do it by email, you can do it by phone. I never used the same email twice or the same phone twice. I think they probably presume some of them are bluffers and I think they are pretty sanguine about that. I don't think they mind having something that people can laugh at. But um, once or twice I got responses from, hey, uh, we noticed that you sent in a, a thing. Um, would you like to talk to us about how you find that experience? Because I believe every two or three years they do. Say, for example, I think when I was doing it, there was one couple who got married and they wrote to the Metro and said, we met through a rush hour crush, you know, one of those stories. And so the Metro sent people to their wedding and, you know, it was like a little, you know, like when Scylla Black used to go to the wedding on Blind Date, I think it happened a few times. <laughs> you know, it's like she, you roll the dice four million times, you know, you're going to occasionally. And, you know, like I, when I was doing it, I didn't know anybody because this was probably 2013, 2014. I didn't really know anybody who'd had, who'd, who'd used much of Tinder or, geez, it would have been like plenty of fish and stuff then. Uh, so it was like seven, okay Cupid and stuff like okay, that. Okay, so like seven or eight years ago, like you forget just how quickly that happened, um, where it went from being something that was like a joke on sitcoms, like, oh, internet dating, to being just literally the only way that anybody meets anyone. Um, so back then, it, maybe it had more of a purpose and people <laughs> were yeah. like, and obviously if people were getting married from it, it did, but yeah, they did back, get in back touch. Back then though, back then people used to approach each other in public though. It's um, just, just disgu disgraceful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just don't know how somebody looks like the first one you ever sent in um, was to the guy who got on a bank <laughs> dressed like Mr. Chips from Catchphrase. Your cheeky smile reminds me of popular sayings. And it's signed, girl in bring back hanging t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how somebody is sitting there, probably somebody in the Metro who hates their job just as much as you did going like, oh, more of these perverts. I have to publish two letters from perverts today. Fuck it. But <laughs> let's put this one in. Yeah. When I, even whenever I used to put them up, because I'd put them up afterwards. So like, but I'd still be able to get, get them in all the time I, because I wasn't using my own name, but presumably they were re working out that it was a certain style of, of, of ones. Um, but then that's obviously not true because as well as obviously reading it myself and seeing the weird ones, I constantly get weird ones sent to me 
saying, oh, is this you is again? You? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 it's not. I'm sorry. That's, that's a, a genuine pervert. That's a, yeah. that's a real pervert <laughs> who wants to talk to some woman who never even looked at him on the bus. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you, you started this because you'd moved to London um, from Derry. Uh, from Derry, well, I was in college oh, you were in Dublin, Dublin so, for a while. So yeah. in Derry, Dublin for seven years, which is why my accent has flattened out slightly. And then went to from D- Dublin then to London ten years ago. Cool. And um, had you had you engaged in any writing beforehand? Is this something that you'd always had in mind that you'd like to to give it a rattle, or was it just you accidentally found yourself as? the author, the incredible raconteur, the one, the only, <laughs> when you were basically pretending to be a pervert in the Metro? Um, I was, I wrote all the way through school and also was involved in an early version of Pure Dairy. Uh, that sort of like satire thing that was in Derry whenever I was like 16 or 17. Um, and, but then when I went to Dublin, I was just having way too much fun. And also everybody I knew who was doing journalism on a professional level was, you know, a, not making very much money and B, had an awful lot of horrible work that they had to do. So I didn't really have the option of not making money because I had <laughs> no money. Um, and I was in a different city and also I discovered, you know, loads of other things uh, to take my mind off things. So I was always working jobs and I was always, if not that, I was studying and I never had any money. So the idea of taking on a sort of a ludicrous creative uh, sort of jump into the void was quite tough especially considering I had actually already decided to do that because I was going to, I made music and I sort of played gigs and did that kind of stuff. So one, I could only really occupy one fanciful creative pipe dream at a time. <laughs> and you can see a direct, you, as soon as I got to London, I slowly but surely started getting to write for money. Like my music just literally stopped happening completely. Because <laughs> uh, I was like, saw this. Two completely financially unviable creative outlets cannot exist in my head at one time. Oh my God, no. Um, yeah, I, I can't believe I kind of glossed over the fact that you're in Dublin because I think even if people don't know you from your Observer column or you're your writing about fatherhood and trying to raise an Irish child in an English country, if they don't know you through the new book, if they don't know you through O'Shea Crush, I think the entire world knows that you got scagged off your tits on Ketterman and met the president. Yes. Uh, While president- working in Dublin. President Mary McAleese, I should say. Uh, yeah. Michael D. Higgins has several times been uh, implicated in my contagion, but that... No, uh, no, 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 it was President McAleese. President McAleese. Your, your, your colleagues, we, look, we won't go through it because it's out there and I think people deserve to read those those tweets, um, you know, in their original um, in their original form because it's, uh, pardon the pun, but it's a trip. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about that was, so I'd... Oh, I, was still working at that terrible job uh, I was already mentioning. Um, and I was obviously still looking for an outlet. By this point, I had a column in the Irish Times, so I wasn't like completely unknown, but it was obviously still not the sort of thing you'd give up your job <laughs> to do. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so I was just so bloody bored at work, just like terminally, but on that particular day, and I just saw this one post come up saying, what's the worst work-related fuck-up you've ever had or something like that? And I replied just with this story in like, I think about 40 tweets connected, 40 tweet thread of the time that I was serving drinks to Mary McAleese at a music venue in Dublin, which his name has been redacted. And <laughs> to protect the guilty. Yeah. But it was that 
that story of me, I, I'd, I'd taken ketamine uh, that day because I thought I was off and I was not off. And so I ended up having to do it. So I described that. So I I really like that story. Uh, I always have and I always will. And it's something which a few people, whenever we've been talking about this book, have kind of tiptoed around. Maybe in the sense that it's like only being known for that one thing. Well, A, I'd be perfectly happy if that was the case. I think it very often is. And two, what I keep, what I have been saying as well is there's a real, there's a real positive aspect to being able to trace so many things that you got off the back of something. Uh, if that thing is really stupid, um, it frees you from a lot of petty vanities. Uh, there's, I don't, I, th- I think I would be just as good, you know, at what I do, uh, if I hadn't had that bolt of lightning that like, I think something like 80 million people have read those tweets now. That's, that's so, amazing. So but like, it's, it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a memento mori, like, you know, yeah. this idea, like the, the, the Romans used to have this guy would stand in the chariot behind successful generals as they was get, as they were getting their parade and he'd whisper in the rear, memento mori, remember you will die. So remember you're mortal. In your case, it's someone standing behind you whispering in your ear going, you're only here where you are because you got some poor Egypt in Selfridge just to put arsemuch on a jar of Nutella. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And there's that, like that, that ring that was designed in that sort of apocryphal tale of the Babylonian emperor who's looking for a ring that would make him happy when he was sad and sad when he was happy. And it was just a ring that said, this too shall pass. Um, <laughs> and I think it's good because the things that came from it, so I can directly attribute um, the observer column to it. Probably the speed, the book deal for this book that I'm talking about kind of came from that thing because it got me on people's register. But also it wasn't thankfully, hey, tell us stories about all these times you've taken drugs and served world leaders. It was, hey, you seem to be able to tell a tale. What else have you got? So if it's an opportunity, that's great. If I was kind of being drafted all the time, and by the way, there were offers to like go and take drugs or to uh, (laughs) play sort of pranks. And I could do, because doing that, I think I would have been like, okay, well, that's pigeonholing. But if it's just a calling card, then I'm glad that it worked in that way. I'm also glad that, um, I mean, I reread it again recently because I had to do it up for, for I had to sort of present it for something. And I still really like it. I like the story because I was telling it for like, you know, ever since it happened. So I'm glad that I got it all off because I was writing it literally in work as I went. There was nothing pre-planned. All of the flourishes that are so uh, over the top and sort of self-serious and pompous, I think they land quite well. So, yeah. More. Yeah, it's More. Every, everyone should take drugs at work. That's the answer. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. I think it is nice. It is nice though that like whoever recognized the talent in this, they don't have you. They're they're not. They don't. They didn't see the next Hunter S. Thompson. They just saw like a, a talent. A talent for being what you said at the start. They're a shanaki, like a storyteller. <laughs> like somebody's taken what could. Like, you could sum that up in one single tweet. Even before it went up to two hundred and eighty characters, you could just say, "Thought I was off, ended up getting high." <laughs> and had to serve drinks to the president of Ireland. Like, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. That's the story. But it's the descriptive nature of it. Just this, your use of language around it. Um, I don't have an awful lot of experience at either meeting presidents or being off my face on Ketamine on the wrong day. But I, I think you, you sort of summed up that, 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 that experience so well that even I, an outsider, could, could understand what it was like. Well, I think um, the really lovely part about it was that loads of people came came out from the woodwork and said, oh God, I remember uh, that night, people who I'd worked with and stuff. Oh, I remember that night. Okay. 
that makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> they weren't forthcoming about what part of it they witnessed or whatever, because I was I was on my own in the room, but there might have been other people who might have seen me. And I certainly have no memory of them, um, which is probably understandable if you read the thread. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, I mentioned, for example, that the ketamine was green and sort of because it was in a, a, a flourish of uh, <laughs> uh, entrepreneurial sort of improvisation by the ketamine wholesaler, dyed it green for St. Patrick's Day. Um, which is just hilarious detail, which a lot of people thought was either made up or just stupid. But then two or three people, you know, very revealingly said, oh, I remember that stuff. Uh, <laughs> I got ale- some of that batch. <laughs> I remember some of that stuff, allegedly. Um, you know, so that was good. And also, I think uh, the attention that it got was so huge and ridiculous that it was a very early primer for that feeling of being, you know, the, there's that brilliant tweet, which is, Every day on every day on Twitter, there's a main character. Yeah, the goal is to not be it, not be that person. So yeah. it was a very interesting experience to have that. You know, where your phone literally your phone doesn't work because you're getting so much you know bits and bobs coming in, um, and also that it was something that it wasn't like me having a massive racist meltdown or I don't know <laughs> just doing something really awful or embarrassing. It was at least in keeping with the stuff that I usually do. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the the goal is never to be the main character, but if you have to, if you absolutely insist on it, yeah. I think that was that was a relatively decent way to I do got, it. I got invited onto a stag do. Uh, uh, I've looked for the me- the tweet the the message recently, but he must have deleted his account. A guy was going on a stag do to Edinburgh, and he wanted he was going to pay for me to come over and to uh, and give me ketamine and to to basically, I don't know, reenact the entire thing somehow. Um, I don't know <laughs> if he... Was bringing Mary McAleese? Well, I don't know what she does. That she just does. sounds like the best I do ever, basically. <laughs> well, I was like, that's a very kind offer, but I'm actually fully booked for the rest of my life. Um, I'm not going to go on a stag do. I was like, it's like when you go to like you know, Cork and Shannon or something and there's like guys who are like selling gimp masks and everything else. It's like, is that what I am now? Am I, am I the stag adjacent kind of <laughs> provocateur? But um, no, other than that, everything that's come from that has been really good. And I can isolate it to being just one of those things. Because even aside from it not being a particularly weighty piece of journalism, it's also a complete <laughs> fluke that I I saw that question, that I replied to it, that I told the story that way. Because, you know, there's loads of days I would have just not seen it, would have been called into a meeting. Like at any point when I wrote all those tweets, I could have been, you know, spotted at my desk doing something I was not supposed to be doing, like <laughs> called in to be sacked or something. Um, so imagine, imagine if you managed to turn up at work off your face on ketamine the day you were supposed to meet the president, and you didn't get sacked. <laughs> but then you got sacked for trying to tell other people. M- many years later, you got sacked from an entirely different job for trying to tell people about the time. Yeah, I mean, you got high at work. so you won't sack me for doing drugs, but you will for honesty. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, it's Jibs here from Pints of Malt. So our podcast is basically a group of Irish Nigerian lads who tell their stories, growing up in Ireland as well as Nigeria, and we share our experiences with all of y'all. We also add a bit of comedy as well, you know, to get y'all laughing, get y'all through the week in these tough times that we are in. So y'all sit back and just, you know, enjoy the show. As Jib said, we're the Pints of Mott podcast. You can find us on all streaming platforms, including the Headstuff Network. So I mentioned as well, just before we get on to the, the matter at hand, the new book, um, I, I did mention as well just the uh, Nutella 
the Nutella incident, which I personally think is the greatest um, anti-capitalist satire of the 21st century. Um, you managed to convince people in Selfridges when they were doing personalised Nutella jars that you had a traditional Irish name like Arsmuck or Bum Gravy and they would publish basically euphemisms for shit on these jars of Nutella. And my favourite thing about the Daily Mail tried to do a hit piece on you about how sinister this thing was. And my favourite bit of it was... <laughs> The Irishman, age 30, uh, has spent £19 and admits he doesn't even like Nutella. <laughs> Why? What? Why? Oh. How? Why? There's See, a twisted mind there, Seamus. That, this is great. It's a, it's a nice little retrospective. Um, so for me, the it started because I saw that people were selling these uh, personalised jars right beside where I worked. It was in South yeah. Did I mention I was really bored of my job? I was, I literally went in and I'd seen that a woman in Australia had complained because her daughter's name is Isis and she tried to get Isis on it and they wouldn't let her because there's a blacklist of names that you can't use. So they wouldn't let you put in, you know, 9-11 was an inside job or swear words or Isis or whatever. So I thought, okay, right. So you can't get bollocks or you can't get whatever. <laughs> what about back dirt? Because... Because Bacter is my favourite term for shit. Um, and it's always rancid. has been. It's just so disgusting. I need to do my back. I need to do my back without losing it laughing. Um, it's just, it's, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the thing about, you know, proper genius is it seems stupid on the outside, but to a true connoisseur who's very bored at his job, I thought at that moment, wouldn't it be funny if... I, from my friends back home, particularly the ones in Dublin who introduced me to the joys of the word back dirt, if I could get a tub in a tub that said back dirt, that would, I would be happy then. I'd be happy then. And I wouldn't have to look at my emails and cry at all of the work and all of the boringness. I could be happy then. I could be a happier me. So I went, I paid seven pounds to get it in a little presentation box as well and just took a picture of it and sent it to some friends and got my little endorphin hit put it on twitter i think i had about three quarters of a follower back then so it was just like nothing and then by the time i did the third one they'd picked up so much speed that the daily mail tried to interview me now i refused an interview with the daily mail but i did give one to the trinity mail oh. group, who then sold the interview to the daily mail so it looks like i'm talking to them in that interview where they sew me up but i uh, i wouldn't have given them the 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 steam off my piss otherwise but they um did this, I love this. To the Ferrero makers of comment on Ferrero this. Just, do you have it there? Will you read it? Because I can't. I, I lose it all the time. <laughs> it used to be. It used to. It used to be the banner for my my Twitter, but I had to change it for yeah, this stupid. I, I have it here. Um, this is have it there a spokesperson for Ferrero, manufacturers of Nutella, said. The aim of the campaign is to give fans of Nutella the chance to personalise their favourite hazelnut spread in a fun and joyful way. It is disappointing that the campaign has been used in this way. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is like, that is like when someone that you look up to and you respect an authority figure that you respect, like Mr. Ferrero or Mr. Roche, uh, they say, I'm not even mad. I'm not even angry. I'm just disappointed. Yeah, it is very, uh, it's very, you've let yourself down here today. You know, it's like a headmaster or possibly possibly the vice principal because the headmaster's not there, you know, lacking in any actual authority, but just overflowing with sort of studied, indifferent disregard. Um, so I took that as a 
badge of honor. I got three more in. I got, <laughs> I was reliably told there was a picture up saying, there was a picture up in their office, the little kiosk that they did the Nutella thing, um, which said not to accept to this guy. He's Irish and whatever. It's like, there was literal descriptions. <laughs> I was followed around the shop once. I was followed around the shop and it's, it's, yeah, be careful what you get famous for. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the payoff where we are now is that you, you have um, a memoir, um, a, a retrospective, uh, a, a personal history, and the title, it instantaneously grabs you. Like, this is something you're going to see on the shelf. And uh, did you hear Mammy died? And I, I, heard, I heard you tell the story, like, that, that the, it originates from a five-year-old you. It um, does, yeah. It's a direct quote from me um, when I was five. So my mum died three weeks before my sixth birthday. Um, and I'm from a big family, so I'm one of 11. So my mum had left 11 kids behind and my dad. And obviously, it's, it's as you would imagine, extremely sad. So we're at a wake. Uh, there's 11 kids between the ages of two and 17. I'm at the younger end, so I'm five. And there's two below me. I'm ninth in line. And because obviously some of us were, you know, much, much younger and maybe a bit oblivious, uh, we were kind of being, you know, handheld and kept on knees and just being looked after basically by this aunt and that uncle and family friends and whoever. But for whatever reason, for some stolen moment, I managed to get free and I traipsed down the hall to where the door was ringing, you know, every few minutes with new people coming in to see the wake and everything. And uh, I was obviously you know, the permanence of death was somewhat lost on me. And so when they came in and I answered the door, I stuck my hand out and said, did you hear mammy died? Um, <laughs> as if it was the, as if it was the news, you know, of the day. It was like, oh, did you hear? I saw a big bird or, you know, whatever. And obviously the title refers just obviously to that, but also to the sort of the dissonance between the fact that I didn't know that it was permanent and also that I didn't really know how to process things yet. So the whole book kind of goes through that whole that whole arc of coming to terms with it, not coming to terms with it, how all of our family worked and just the logistics of how a family of 11 works in a bungalow on the Derry-Donegal border through the troubles and, you know, everything else. So I thought a title which could be funny and sad at the same time yeah, uh, was was worth getting. That's it. That's exactly what it is. Like it's funny and sad at the same time. And um, like I, I, something about Derry and just the sheer amount of talent, not just yourself, Lisa McGee, but I mean, one of my favorite books when I was younger, not not that younger, but maybe when I was in college, I think I read it maybe the end of secondary school was Seamus Dean's book, Reading in the Dark. Oh man, brilliant book. Yeah. It was a really brilliant, again, a memoir about a childhood in Derry, obviously completely and totally different, but there's... I, don't, I find it really, really tricky to like when you pick up a book, sometimes you pick up a book and it's about the author as a child or like some kind of a surrogate for the author as a child. And sometimes it's it's risky because sometimes it's a bit shit because like sometimes <laughs> you're reading it and you're going like, there's no fucking way you knew this as a child. Yeah. Like, and also think, how many interesting things really happen to kids? I mean, yeah. I think if you got a family of 11 in Derry during the Troubles, there's a fair yeah. amount of interesting shit that could have happened. I mean, thanks God. I yeah. think you're on the safe side of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the better things about the troubles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did say interesting. I didn't say funny in that particular regard. Um, yeah. So look, obviously it's, um, th there are so many pointless and banal questions I could ask you around like, you know, what was it like to grow up without a mother or something like that, you know, but I'm sure you'll get uh, a lot of those as you do these sort of interview circuits. 
But I, I suppose I want to ask you about, because we tend to deal in like the cultural nuances and subtleties and idiosyncrasies of being Irish and, and Irish culture and all that. And you've been in England for a while now. Um, do we do grief differently? Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really interesting thing and something I've talked to a lot of people about. I think a lot of people in England are aware of the idea of the Irish wake, but probably from slightly hackneyed representations in movies and, you know, not even just Irish things, but, you know, whenever they're exported to sort of Boston Catholics and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, But it's definitely true. I mean, if you go to an English funeral, they can be uh, rather more reserved. Um, There's also just the sort of the the sort of presence of the flesh. There's the idea that the person is there, you know, if if you have an open casket anyway, which we did, um, that you see the, the person there, like all waxy and strange. You know, there's a, there's a closeness to the body in, in that sense, in the ritual sense. And also the fact that it's very much, uh, it's very much a communal get together. Um, and in wakes, it wouldn't be unusual to have singing. It wouldn't be unusual for people to be staying to the wee small hours and drinking and, chatting and laughing you know laughter even in a a place as as, as tragic as you know my mum was 43 when she died she left 11 kids behind her she was a saintly woman that everybody loved she'd only lived in Derry for six years and she had over a thousand people at her funeral uh, for years and years afterwards I'd be stopped in the street by someone who'd recognise my resemblance to her or to my other brothers and sisters that they did know and they'd stop and they'd give me a soliloquy about you know how amazing she was so that's the saddest most mirth-free example of a funeral and a wake you could imagine. But there was still laughter. There were still people telling funny stories. There were still people singing songs. Um, and that is, I think that's, it's not just sort of a, a break from grief and a sort of a, and a stop valve against grief. It's a, it's a part of the healing process, you know? And if you're trying to, res- that old idea that if there's no laughter to wake, it's barely a tribute. You know, it should be that thing. And, and that's easier to say, obviously, if someone's lived a long and happy life and they died with the people around them and everything. But even in those times when it's so dark and there's no way out of it, then I think that's something that we do do quite well. There's a lot of things I think that Irish culture and society doesn't do well yeah, yeah. to do with psychology and I think, you know, mental mental health and opening up. And I think particularly men, young men and older men. But that might be one thing that we... We do do quite well, um, and also just keeping you busy. You know, if you're if you're yeah. ho- hosting a wake, you're, you know, you can grieve, but you have to make six hundred cups of tea and fashion several pyramids of sandwiches. You know, that in, even that is a. In thing. my wife's part of the country, it's always a huge pot of chicken curry. Oh really? Like that's that's oh yeah, that's part of it for the way, and it's always two days where the body's reposing in the in the family home. Yeah. And it's it's always a massive pot of chicken curry, as well as your mountain of sandwiches and your millions and millions of cups of tea. And it does, it, ke- it keeps you going. One thing that somebody said to me, and I, and I think it, it resonates, I've lost relatives who've lived in, in, in Britain and it's it's weeks, it's weeks until you have a funeral. Yeah, I think the fact that we do it while everything is so raw and while the emotions are still being incredibly, you know, everything's all fucked up because you've no idea how you should be feeling because it literally just happened the other day. I think I, I think that's why we have this more cathartic process and, and that the wake is that mixture of joy and celebration as well as grief and, and, and desolation. Yeah, well, I was speaking to someone just there two days ago who's British-Nigerian um, and he was saying that the way the Nigerians, and he said also Ghanaians, but I'm sure it's true of lots of you know 
African countries, the way they uh, wake the dead is very similar. You know, they it is much more of a communal thing. It's constant eating. It's into the wee small hours. You know, there's more of a... It's a very communal thing. Loads of adults and children all together. There will be laughter. There will be music. Um, so I think maybe we only think it's strange compared to, you know, the superculture of Britain, you know? I mean, I don't, for example, know... Uh, I think some of the, the Scandinavians and the Germans seem to be similarly quite reserved at these things. But the Mediterraneans and a lot of the Arab countries and definitely the uh, West African countries, uh, people from those places, uh, always point this out as a big thing. You know, and that's that kind of drills down even to beyond wakes and funerals. Things about eating, being forced to eat when you arrive in someone's house. You know? <laughs> and it's, as someone from Southern Italy meets an Irish person, they will immediately talk, uh, they can talk about that aspect of their their lives is that having to go to someone's house and eat until you want to die. And, uh, and do they have do they have the polite refusal as well? Do well, they have to do that? Or? Well, there's that amazing three time thing where you can yeah. say you can say no twice, and then oh, there's a brilliant phrase in Irish which I don't remember, which is a two time asker. Do you know that one? No, it's, it's someone. Well, it's some. It's someone who says who offers it to you twice, knowing that you can only ask. You could, you have to ask a third time before <laughs> I'll have it's to accepted. Look that one up, but yeah. that is perfect. That's spot on. Like. So, oh, that's a two-time asker. They're so they're so abstemious. They're so tight that they'll ask you twice if you want a sandwich, so that they don't get the third ask where which, it's polite which for you to say. Which will be the actual yes. Yeah, yeah. I go on. I go on. I go on. Oh, go you're on, fine on. then. But that's yeah. the other thing. I was I was just talking to someone else today in one of these things about how in Britain, Father Ted, Mrs Doyle, and the tea, the constantly asking about tea or the pyramid of sandwiches how that was seen as part of the absurd properties of father ted which is which it has loads of you know there's really silly outsized craziness that is amazing about father ted but irish people then have to always correct them say no no that's that's like more observational that's like a kitchen sink that's not even a like the height of those pyramids is not Really, it's like five percent more than I would have seen my entire life. Yeah. Tea, it's only slightly exaggerated for emphasis, like yeah. Like, and she's on, she's only Mrs. Doyle is only asking. She's only insisting on the cup of tea slightly more yeah. than your granny or your auntie would. Yeah, because like. they they think that she's just a complete insane person who happens to live in their house. No, no, she's just a ten percent more. Uh, insistent version of someone that is so familiar to all <laughs> Irish people and you kind of fall down that rabbit hole because at one stage at one point you kind of want to you know say well you know we're not all like this we're not all <laughs> pig holding slatterns who you know get into leaping contests with the fairy folk but on the other hand it's a small country and some stereotypes are a real time saver and I think some of the some of the rubrics about Irish culture that are very universal to us are not really known outside so i quite like either dispelling the myths or perhaps propagating (laughs) (laughs) i'm just sort of saying listen cultural stereotypes are bad except for that one that one and that one which are actually incredibly accurate i do i do have a column for the observer which i've been writing for three years and i can never ever predict what will hit or what will land no matter what i talk about and the two times that it's really blown up to a degree that was almost uncomfortable was when i said that lasagna with coleslaw is not a bad combination, but it's a strange combination. And it was <laughs> That's like, like declaring fucking war. It was like I took out a hit on Michael D. Higgins and Bosco <laughs> on the same day. I and not only that, but all the all the English people in my mentions were like, "What are you? What are you talking? What are you about? even talking about? The yeah. Italians? You should have heard the Italians in my mentions." So they were like, "Please report anybody you've seen doing this to me, and I will personally have them professionally killed." 
The other one was heating plates. Now, my family, were not a family where we heated plates because we, probably because we grew up without a mother. Oh, <laughs> but we didn't have heated plates. And that's never, a great throwaway. I can't have any interjection or comment there. That's, that's. I know. That's, 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 what I, that's why I called the book that. So I wouldn't get any bad reviews unless, you know. <laughs> People were just like laughing at my, my half orphanage. So the, the heating plates, I said, oh, I don't understand why people heat plates. I don't get it. Like, uh, and I lit, again, it was, it was literally like I'd spat in Enya's face. It was just, <laughs> a, just a tirades against me. I, I, so I've kind of realized slowly but surely that lots of things that I think are universal tend to be just because I'm from Ireland or just because I'm from Derry. And when I was writing the book, I found that an awful lot of the things that I was going through, the specifics of just even my living with 10 other people for so much of my life, I was like, oh, right, I haven't actually worked out that that's, that's not usual. Like most people don't have to bring their fingers into it when they count their siblings uh, or don't have to mention them all in age order every time they do. Because <laughs> I do, I can only really mention their names in age order. Um so like being able to tangle those things, you know, I think living here and having to speak about these experiences and just wider experiences of Ireland, Northern Ireland, particularly living on the border, which is I be, never was mentioned once in my life until about five years ago. I can't remember why. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> living, living on that, living that experience has been something where I've had to explain to people things which I never thought I'd ever have to explain. Like the idea that a 300 mile border, which is mostly hedges and fields and has you know, about 12 major crossings. But apart from that, it's just open farmland and rickety bridges and my dad's fence, uh, <laughs> which he has to keep a horse out of his roses. You know, that's not militarizable. That's not something, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's not something that you can put a, a machine gun turret uh, on top of, you know? So yeah. I think it's very good training if you go to another place to ferret out those differences and to find what it is about those things that you learn about yourself and about the place you're in that are interesting and things that you can maybe turn into sort of an insight that you can use or that you can hit upon to kind of, you know, hammer home some of those differences. Because at the end of the day, people who've lived it like to see that stuff talked about and people who haven't are often bewildered and surprised and amazed. And it's in that sort of bewilderment and surprise and and amazement that you can you can really get to grips with new experiences and sort of understand other cultures. So it's something we do when we go to other places and we learn about them. But I think it really does. It really does come through in particular. I've loved your observer column um, because I think um, you you had your kid uh, sort of around about the same time I had mine. And I've really enjoyed watching your struggles and failures and successes, <laughs> mostly failures because they're funnier. You probably write about more of those. Um, but I really enjoyed that. Um, um, and it's really resonated with me. And I think there's going to be something in the book that's going to resonate with everyone, even if you even if you haven't uh, lost your mammy tragically at a young age, or even if you don't have 10 siblings uh, or a father who's struggling to deal with all of it. But look, the book is is out now. Did You Hear Mammy Died is, is published by Fleet, and it's available. I've always wanted to say this. It's available at all good bookstores, yeah? Yay, it is indeed. Uh, and some uh, of the bad ones. Derek normally gets to say all the cool catchphrases, which is why, and you won't hear this on the final pod, but I completely fucked up the intro uh, and we had to retake it because Derek normally does all of that. But unfortunately, he's away. But I had the pleasure of speaking to you, Seamus O'Reilly. We always ask all of our guests, do you have a favourite Irish word? I do. It's Amadon.
Ah, nice one. Yeah. I love the classics. It is. And it's probably one you've probably been uh, given before. I just love how easily it trips off the tongue. And it just, it sounds like someone, it sounds like someone being hit with a club on both sides of the face. <laughs> you know, it has, uh, has that little chip. It's great. It's, it's got that sort of those, those, those bass notes, that timbre to it. Um, I like it. I like Amadon because it's, it's, um, it's very soft. Like mm. it literally translates as idiot. Um, but it's kind of in the same way that Egypt is softer than idiot. I think Amadon is even softer again. Like yeah. it's just, it's almost affectionate. Yeah. Or it is. Yeah. 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 Sure. Look at the big old Amadon over there with his book and his, his column and his, <laughs> uh, Seamus, thanks a million. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been absolutely delightful. Thanks for having me. Mother Folklore Last Orders will, for the time being, come out uh, every Friday until we finish up this wonderful podcast adventure. Thanks, as always, to all of you for tuning in. Thanks to Kirsten Shield for the art and to Brian for producing. Um, Derek will be back and normal service will resume in next week's Mother Folklore Last Orders. Slán. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. He asked a question and you hear a very distant... (laughs) 